0: .NET Rocks episode 775 with guest Stephen Taub. Recorded live Thursday, May 24th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.NET, training developers to work smarter and now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePAK.com.
1: And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome to .NET Rocks. Welcome back. Carl and Richard, it's a whole lot of async today. How are you, my friend?
2: I always like a little parallelism. Yeah. I like a little parallelism
1: what's going on you did you said it twice i got that
2: <laughs> at the same time you were talking at
1: first i thought you were losing your mind then I, <laughs> ah richard go for <Gopher> joke
2: <laughs> ah do you remember remember howard Durking did that msdn uh, uh, editorial about parallelism where he actually had three different paragraphs yes. side by side on the page
1: yeah that was one of our finer moments
2: could read them in any order i love that
1: That was great
2: brilliant 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 <laughs>
1: Yeah, and don't forget Grampy day, juggling. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was our
2: silly period. All right. Well, Juggling is parallelism.
1: Well, yes, it is. And it's it's really complex, isn't it? I mean, if well, you think you about Well, when you recognize
2: it, that you only have two threads in one on each arm. That's right. And you're juggling three items. You've got a cache. It's called the air. Nice. <laughs> hey, let's uh, get
1: into Better Know Framework here. Roll the music.
2: All righty. What do you got for me?
1: Well, I have a class that I can barely explain. It's called System.Runtime.ExceptionServices.ExceptionDispatchInfo, and here to explain it is our guest, Stephen Taub. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Carl. How are you? So I asked you before the show if you could uh, dredge up a kind of esoteric class that not a lot of people may know, but uh, you guys use inherently, and this is it. Tell us about it.
0: Yeah, so this is something that I think .NET has been uh, missing for a while now, so it's, it's very welcome. Uh, it's something that we really benefit from internally in all of our parallelism libraries and asynchronous libraries, uh, but it's also something that folks can really benefit from uh, if they use directly. So it's, it's esoteric, but it's also quite handy. Um, sort of the core, the core issue that it addresses is that prior to .NET 4.5, Or even in .NET 4.5, when you say throw exception, or exception to some exception object, Mm -hmm. uh, the CLR stores into that exception object information about where you are. Yeah, the stack Uh, trace. That information comes in sort of two forms. It's a stack trace, so that when you later look at the exception, you know where it came from. Uh, And it's also some um, diagnostic information that's good for post-mortem debugging, uh, such that if you have a, a crash dump and you upload the crash dump and you go and sort of analyze it, uh, you can find out, uh, where that kind of, uh, where in the binary that exception occurred from. And it makes it very easy for systems to, uh, uh to kind of group together or sort of bucketize, yeah. uh, all these different crashes that are coming in and pick out the ones that are most common and then you can go and address those first. Cool. So both this, this Watson information, which is what it, we refer to it as, and the, the stack trace, are really helpful for debugging purposes. Um, now, when you say throw exception, that gets filled in, regardless of where whether the exception was already thrown. So the, when you throw an exception for the first time, those fields are basically empty, and the CLR goes and fills them in when it throws the exception. If you then throw the exception again, that same object, the CLR will dutifully... Uh, capture and store all that exception again, uh, all that information again, overriding the previous information.
1: Now, that's if you're in the same object, but if one exception catches another and then re-throws it, right?
0: Right. And so, and which is exactly why if you read the .NET Framework Design Guidelines, uh, the .NET Framework Design Guidelines state, don't throw the same exception object again, mm. create a new exception around the original one so that the original is the inner exception, right. and then throw the new one. Yes. Uh, and so you'll find a lot of libraries that do that, and you find exceptions like target invocation exception from the reflection namespace,
1: mm-hmm.
0: whatever else. Um, but this is also, uh, this, this particular issue is troublesome when, uh, in particular in the threading world, in the parallelism world, because a lot of times you have something that occurs on one thread, it, you know an exception occurs, but you don't actually want to have that exception propagate in that original location. You want to sort of marshal that exception over to some other thread where someone's actually joining with the results of the operation and then you want the exception to propagate there. Uh, but if you were to just catch the exception object stored into a field and then on, some, on that other on that other thread just say throw the exception stored in that field, you'd end up losing all of the original information about where the exception was originally thrown. Right. Uh, which is unfortunate. Pesky um, threads. Exactly. Threads are, are quite pesky. Mm. Um, So, what exception dispatch info does is, uh, conceptually, it's very simple. It basically doesn't overwrite the data, um, but rather, uh, it it appends. So, rather than just saying throw exception, uh, when the exception is caught initially, you can say exception dispatch info dot capture, which basically creates an exception dispatch info object that wraps the original exception. And that's what you store. And then on the other thread where you want to throw it, rather than saying throw exception, you say, you take that exception dispatch info object and you call its throw method. Nice. And what that will do is maintain the original Watson information so that the, the post-mortem diagnostic system can correctly bucketize based on where the, the error originally occurred. But for a human who wants to sort of understand where that exception's been, that throw method will... Uh, append the current stack location, the current stack trace to the exception stack trace so that you see both the original stack trace and the new one. And if you throw it again, you'll get that, you know, that additional trace added. So you can kind of look at the, the stack trace from the exception and see all of the different places that it's been thrown and sort of, you get this sort of inverted, uh, flow that you can follow as you're doing your, your debugging.
1: I just have one question. Would you like to come on the show and do all of the Better Know frameworks from now on? Cause that was <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that's thank more you. nutritional um, value than we've gotten in that bit the whole time we've done it. That was great.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I, uh, I, I may run out of esoteric classes that are also very useful, but um, I'll do my best. All
1: right. And if you just search Bing for uh, exception dispatch info, you'll come up with a, a link to that.
2: Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of the show uh, 764, which is one we did with Ted newer just recently. Uh, and you remember, Ted was a little, little bit of a grumpy old man that day. He was yeah, talking he's, about was async downright
1: cantankerous.
2: Yeah, downright cantankerous. You know, now that uh, Bill Vaughn's not around as much, we need somebody to step up and surprise right. the
1: man. And, you know, Stephen would appreciate, you know, he's basically saying, yeah, there's, there's like nothing in.NET 4 or 5 except that async await stuff. And who needs that? <laughs>
0: Well, as much as I appreciate that, there is a ton of goodness in .NET 4.5. Although uh, I do personally believe that Async Await is the best.
2: Yeah. I'm well, and I'm grading a comment here from Chris Snyder from off the website, and he says, I realize I'm a bit late to the commenting party here, but I wanted to bring up a point about the general malaise, and he says that in quotes, in .NET development today. Mm. I do believe that the lack of cool features in .NET 4.5, forgive me f devs, has something to do with it, as well as the inconsistent message about .NET in Win 8, which I don't buy either. No, I don't because, buy it either. Yeah. Uh but at least from my own personal perspective, I think that these things are less of a factor than sheer overload. Look mm. at what a developer, quote, needed to know five years ago. We needed to be proficient in three to five technologies with a smattering of knowledge about other technologies. Contrast that with today. If you're an enterprise developer, you better know .NET with C or VBnet. And since Metro is coming, you better learn WinRT and C++.
1: Nah, you okay. don't need to learn C++.
2: No. Oh, yeah, and the desktop is dead. The future is mobile, so you better learn mono, Java, and Objective-C.
1: Tell that to all of corporate America.
2: Right. And for your rich web apps, you needed to be an expert in HTML5, CSS, and JavaScript. And you can't be an expert in JavaScript without knowing jQuery, jQuery UI, Knockout.js, Backbone.js, and about a bajillion other libraries. Oh, yeah, and don't forget about the cloud. You better learn Node.js and Azure and add in three to five NoSQL databases, Erlang, Reactive Extensions, Web API, and about a dozen other technologies that you might be able to keep your job for the next few years. Oh, please. Just look at the wide diversity of technologies that you guys have covered in the last 12 to 18 months. Each one of them had a large group of pundits saying that these things are critical to software development. You better learn them or else. Finally, add on the stuff you're supposed to do, not just know. Certain folks on the web, and I won't mention names here, insist that you better contribute to open source, and you better attend all the tech meetups in your area, and you need a blog that you update at least once a week, and you better follow these 1,000-plus people on Twitter, and you better... In other words, I think a lot of us are swamped. I know Hmm. I am. Hmm. Chris... You have a dark view on the world, my friend. <laughs> dark, dark, dark. His point is well taken.
1: That yes, there is a lot to know, but that's only if you want to do all of it. Yeah, you don't have to do all of it. Mm-mm. You know, we have to we have to talk about all of it, but that doesn't <laughs> mean that you need to do all of it. So I
2: also think that that part of our job, and I hope you guys get this from the show, is that we try and summarize some technology so you can decide you don't need to know them.
1: That's right. Yeah.
2: Uh, and if we're not doing that you should write us more nasty comments saying, and I hey what's going on
1: I also think that you know there is such a shortage of people uh, of good software developers that you you know you you climb into any one of those silos and just and get good at it and they're gonna the money's gonna show up at your door like yeah. there's opportunities there we should be happy that we have jobs because this economy <laughs> sucks.
2: Yeah, well, and, and it's still more software development to do than we have time for. Absolutely. So I think you can pick any of those stratas and be successful with them.
1: Yeah. And don't ever let anybody tell you you have to do anything.
2: Yeah, Use your brain. But meantime, you can commiserate with a fine .NET Rocks mug. I'll ship one out to you, no matter how grumpy you may be. Maybe you need a little more coffee. Or bourbon. Yeah, there you go. You can put whatever it, you want. It holds bourbon, too. I'm just saying. So, Chris, thanks for your comment. A mug's on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET
1: And before we formally introduce Steven, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with over 250 hardcore developer training courses, uh, releasing 12 to 15 new courses every month. And they offer a free 10-day trial, 200 minutes of access to their library. Uh, they can learn all about Parallel Programming with courses like Introduction to Async and Parallel Programming in .NET 4 and TPL Async. Try Plural Site today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. Good stuff. And uh, our guest today is Stephen Taub. You've already heard his voice, but I just need to tell you that he is an architect on the Parallel Computing Platform team at Microsoft. Welcome back to the show.
0: Yeah, it was great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for that great introduction. And, you know, I, I just want to set the stage here. But uh, before the show, I went looking on Newegg.com for the the biggest, baddest motherboard CPU combination I could find. And if you want to spend 4400 bucks, you can get 64 cores of AMD, uh, that's four AMD L3G34 processors that, uh, right, 16-core server processors and a motherboard that holds four of them and 256 gigs of RAM only costs you 4400 bucks. That's just for the CPUs and motherboards. Richard, that's almost $5,000. Are you thinking what I'm thinking?
2: That's pretty close to what the giveaway could be, but you know what you just spec'd out? I built uh, a system a few years ago in the windows 2000 era that was a 64 core machine we got i think from unisys and it was 300 grand wow and it was a 64 core machine and it did not have that one of the big discussions was could we was it one gig or two big gigs per core and you just spec four gigs per core yeah
1: yeah pretty amazing well, that's the world we live in today. Uh, I, you know, every once in a while, I see a picture on Facebook or Twitter of somebody with their, um, you know, their their uh, task manager up with, you know, the performance tab. And there's, you know, 16, 20, 64, 32 CPUs there listed. And uh, we just, we have evolved to this place where the cores are coming and your software better handle it. So with that, Steve, you got some stuff to help us deal with all that, don't you?
0: We do, in fact. I feel like a salesman.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> now yeah. how much would you pay? <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think one of the last times I was, I was on the show, uh, we talked about sort of all the, the parallelism goodness that was in .NET 4. Yeah. Uh, and since then, uh, .NET 4.5 is now out, uh, at least in um, uh, beta and release candidate form. Uh, and you know, marching towards uh, RTM. And there's just a ton more, uh, more goodness in there. Uh, although interestingly, a lot of the, we sort of, we've added to the parallelism support, both from a framework perspective and a tooling mm-hmm. perspective, but we've also tacked on a bunch of new, Im- incredibly important scenarios that are in the same general area. Uh, and that is, of course, uh, asynchrony. So parallelism and asynchrony are, are very related, but they, they solve, typically solve very different problems. Uh, and there's a lot of new stuff in.NET 4.5 uh, to address uh, asynchrony in addition to having some improvements around all the parallelism work.
1: This portion of.NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Code. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how would you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type? and not just for the opened files. The new kid on the block, JustCode, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that JustCode is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where JustCode is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features JustCode offers and download a trial at tellericcom JustCode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So would you say parallelism is, running, is long-running tasks running at the same time, and asynchrony is maybe shorter things that need to be synchronized around a single process? Or how would you describe it?
0: I, yeah, I wouldn't exactly describe it that way. So there, there are three terms that are thrown around a lot that some folks use interchangeably, but I sort of think about them in a very specific way. And that is uh, concurrency, parallelism, and asynchrony. Okay. Um, so we, why don't we start with asynchrony, because I think that's sort of foundational to the others. Okay. Uh, when I think about asynchrony, I'm really thinking about not how something is run, uh, how it's running, but rather how it's started. Um, so if, if I have, if I'm, have, if I have a thread of control and I want to do a piece of work, I can either run it synchronously, which means I'm going to start it on the current thread and therefore it's going to run to completion on the current thread. So it's all going to be synchronous with regards to my current thread of control,
2: mm-hmm. or
0: I can run it asynchronously, meaning I basically start it such that it runs somewhere else, and I can continue doing something else on the current thread. Mm -hmm. So the the async, whether something is async or not, is really about how you you invoke it, how it gets kicked off.
1: So that's the fundamental multi-threading concept.
0: Yes, although even with... um, I want to be careful with with multi-threading. So let me come back to that in just a moment. Okay. Uh, And let me finish with concurrency and parallels, and then I'll I'll come back to your comment. Um, Now... In order for, if you start in a world where everything is single threaded, you have a single thread, then in order to get concurrency or two things happening at the same time or multiple things happening at the same time, you need asynchrony. Because if you didn't have it, if you didn't have the ability to start something asynchronously, everything would run on the current thread and you wouldn't have, you, everything would just be, you know, one after the other, it would all be sequential and you wouldn't have concurrency. So asynchrony is sort of a precursor to being able to run concurrently, if you start in a world where everything is sort of, everything is single threaded synchronous. Okay. If you uh, start in a world where uh, you're already concurrent, um, then if those things, you know, if, if I have two people, right, and they didn't come from the same place, they're, they're running independently, they're sort of operating concurrently. But I okay. wouldn't say that they're running, in, I, I personally wouldn't say that they're, that there's any parallelism there. I would call that they're running concurrently. Okay. Um, what I think of as parallelism is when you sort of when you have a single problem, and you want to run that problem faster by taking advantage of concurrency. I see. Uh, so if I have a single problem, I can split that problem into multiple pieces. I can launch work asynchronously to process each of those pieces, such as such that all that work is running concurrently, um, and then I typically will join the results back together to get my single answer. Hmm. Um, so I sort of see it as like this, this Russian nesting doll of, you know, I've got asynchrony and concurrency sort of builds on top of that and parallelism sort of builds on top of that. Because
2: okay. you can be asynchronous but not concurrent.
0: That's true. Um, but
2: you it's pretty hard to be concurrent on a single problem if you're not asynchronous.
0: I would go so far as to say it's impossible. Okay. Um, because if, if you have a single problem that you started in one place, Then, in order for you to have concurrency, you had to be able—you had, by definition—to do uh, to split it apart and kick off two things that had the potential to run at the same time. And in order to run at the same time, you had to run one of them asynchronously.
1: Well, the thing that I—the thing that's coming back to me that has to be part of this definition—is within the same process because Windows is concurrent by the virtue that I can run two applications in two different processes at the same time. Would you call that concurrent? Would you call it asynchrony? Or would you certainly wouldn't call it parallel because they're not working on the same problem?
0: Right. So a lot of these things you know, are very are in the eye of the beholder. And I should call it caveat by saying there are different definitions for these things out there in the world. If you look in sort of the academic literature, you'll find different definitions, multiple different definitions. No one completely agrees. So this is sort of, from my perspective, how I, I like to view the world. Cool. Uh, but to your, your comment about Windows, Look at it from the perspective of the user. That might be the easiest way. Right. Um, when I, if I run two applications, I asynchronously, I start one sort of asynchronously by, because after I double click the icon to, to open that application, I can still move the mouse. I can still go out and do other things. So I sort of, I've asynchronously launched that application. Um, and then I can go and asynchronously launch another. So again, I used asynchrony to achieve concurrency.
1: And they are both running concurrently. And they're both running concurrently. Yeah even though they might be totally independent of each other, they still might be working to... Now, here's an idea. Uh, a, a, a user could uh, open three or four different applications that are all the same applications, split up the work of a big job between those apps, and now you've got parallelism.
0: Yep, absolutely. In fact, I know I have a bunch of friends uh, in academia getting their PhDs or professors or whatever... Um, and there are certain software applications out there that a lot of statisticians or mathematicians use, um, which charge. Uh, they have two different versions. They'll have like the single-threaded version, and then they'll have the multi-threaded version, which they charge for more. They charge more yeah. for. Yeah. And you know, a lot of these graduate students are. Uh, you know, they don't make a whole lot of money as graduate students. And so they'll take on the extra burden of rather than paying a lot of money for the multi-threaded version, which could solve their problem, you know, four times faster on their quad core, mm-hmm. they'll buy the single threaded version and then they'll sort of manually implement the parallelism no. by breaking up their data into four pieces and running four occurrences of this application, each on those different those different segments of data.
2: Oh, that's awesome. That's not that far away from uh, what Hadoop does, really. Uh-huh. That kind of decomposition across machines and then recomposition.
0: Yeah, and this, that sort of parallelism, it's all fundamentally the same. It all comes back to you need to partition your data, you need to process the pieces concurrently, and then you mm-hmm. need to join the results. Right. Uh, that's what happens, you know, in that sort of single machine scenario we just talked about. With systems like Hadoop that run distributed across multiple machines, that's what happens. And even with something like uh, with the parallel for loop that was introduced in .NET four, that's also what it does in the same process. You give it a a collection of data; it distributes the data across different threads that are doing processing, and it joins the results back together. One of
1: the one of the criticisms Ted uh, Neward had, or not a criticism, but you know, one of his points was that uh, the async await um, features. In uh, this n- this new version of .NET, really only solve uh, one parallel problem. You know, in a, in other words, maybe not really only solve, but you know, the number of people that could actually use that is small. And I, my my counter argument was that I, I think in a business application, most of the problems can be solved with async and await, not just because of the technology, but because of how the technology allows us to write code which is the way we've always written it, top-down procedurally. So I don't know if you want to address that.
0: Yeah, so to Ted's point, I, I don't disagree that it solves uh, a few specific problems. Um, I think that's true. I think those problems are huge. Um, so the, the importance of them, I think, is, is very big. In particular, um, with the async await features in, in C Sharp and Visual Basic, Um, they're really addressing, I think, two key problems that people run into. Um, And they'll run into them more or less depending on whether they're doing client-side or server-side programming.
1: Mm.
0: On the client-side, one of the big issues that people face, regardless of what operating system they're targeting, is one of responsiveness. Um, Most user interfaces... Uh, regardless of what UI framework you're talking about on what OS. Uh, Typically, they have sort of single-threaded constraints where a single thread uh, is responsible for manipulating the UI. And as a result, we end up running a lot of our work on this one thread because a lot of our work involves manipulating those components. But often we have long-running operations that if we were to do them synchronously on that thread, we would end up, uh, getting the you know the dreaded toilet bowl of death or the pinwheel of death, depending on uh, what platform you're targeting. <laughs> um, and and so asynchrony can help to free up that thread so that the work can happen elsewhere while the UI remains responsive. And Carl, this comes back to your comment about uh, multi-threading. Uh, the reason I hesitated when you mentioned multi-threading is. Um, not all asynchronous operations require dedicated threads for the for the duration of their processing. Sure, sure. Um, in particular, lots of IO, if I'm doing a network call, I don't actually need to have a thread sitting here blocked while I wait for a packet to travel from Japan to the United States. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I can, uh, I have a thread that can kick off a request that goes down to the OS on the network card and then goes across the network. But at that point, all I need is sort of, a little bit of information sitting somewhere in, in the operating system that says when a response comes back, then kick off the following thing. And yeah. in the meantime, the thread that initiated the operation can go off and do other things. And while, and until that packet comes back from Japan, um, you know, there's, there's nothing my, op- my application needs to be doing. I don't need to be wait- wasting any resources, uh, waiting for it. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of the, the responsiveness side of things. One of the other big issues that asynchrony, and and therefore async await solve, is on the server side, and that's more around um, scalability. Um, Now, I will say, before I talk about scalability, I'll say that you can have scalability problems on a client, and you can have responsiveness uh, problems on a server, but typically, the folks that are writing client applications, 90% of the time, their issues are around responsiveness, and on the server, 90% of the time, their issues are around scalability. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... Whereas on the client, the problem with blocking a thread was that that thread was needed to do other things like respond to mouse and keyboard or touch input and redraw the UI. Um, on the server, it's more about uh, not just one particular thread, but lots of threads getting getting stopped up. Um, yeah. And so you want to allow your threads to continue to process work rather than waiting, because if a thread waits, and another request comes into the server. You're going to need another thread in order to process that that request, or or else that request is going to get starved, and the person's going to sit there and have responsiveness issues. Uh, so on the server, asynchrony is typically more about how do I do more with less? How do I avoid blocking my my threads? How do I avoid consuming unnecessary resources while waiting for things to happen? Um, and async await really really directly target those two cases. Now that said. Because uh, async and await allow you to sort of coordinate uh, asynchronous work, they can absolutely be used in parallelism scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, but just with async await alone, you can't actually achieve parallelism. Uh, no. all, the a- all the async keyword does is tell the compiler to basically rewrite that particular method into a state machine-based implementation, right. such that you're allowed to use the await keyword and have these suspension points inserted into the method, where the method can, in effect, return while at some point in the method it's waiting. For so something. it
1: does nothing to actually split up the work, is what you're saying.
0: Exactly. And because nothing with async, async await themselves don't actually launch any work asynchronously, they themselves are insufficient to achieve...
1: Just by themselves, but I, you know, what you're saying is the the parallelism pattern is up to you in your application. Depending on what you're doing, you're the one who has access to that data. You're the one who's going to split it into, you know, a, a bunch of worker threads, and then and then stitch it all together at the end.
0: Exactly, that's and your job. So you, yeah, and so you need something else that would actually introduce that uh, that parallelism or that concurrency. Uh, or that asynchrony, whatever you want to call it. Um, And there are many, many such APIs in the .NET framework. Um, Some of them are focused more on I.O., and some of them are focused more on compute. Um, For example, the stream class in .NET 4.5 now has uh, new methods called readasync, writeasync, flushasync. And these methods write to the stream, read from the stream, flush the stream, and so on, but they all do so asynchronously. So the actual implementation of these APIs are what introduce the asynchrony, and then the APIs return a task that you can await, uh, so that you can basically tell the method that you're that's consuming these APIs to suspend until those asynchronous operations complete.
1: Fantastic.
0: Um, now, where you can then get kind of more concurrency is let's say I was writing a method, and rather than saying uh, await uh, write async, I, I instead said uh, task t1 equals stream one dot write async, followed by task T2 equals stream2.readAsync. Um, so now I've I've kicked off two asynchronous operations, um, and I haven't yet waited for either of them. If I had just said await stream1.readAsync, then I'm kicking off the operation and waiting for it to complete immediately, which doesn't give me an opportunity to do anything else in the interim. Right. But if I separate the creation of the operation from the waiting on the operation... I can introduce concurrency. I can introduce parallelism. Um, And so I could say, you know, task T1 equals stream1.writeAsync, task T2 equals stream2.writeAsync, and then I could say await task.whenAllT1T2, and there I I basically created a classic fork-join pattern, uh, which is a typical uh, parallelism pattern, Mm. where I've kicked off two operations, and then I wait for them to complete.
2: Surfing the web?
1: Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the new feature list for Active Report 6. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support, so that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. makes it a lot more efficient.
2: Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing.
1: Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm gonna order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active
2: reports from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers.
1: Awesome. Well, Richard, you know what time it is. It
2: must be that happy time again.
1: Time to give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection to a lucky member.
2: Ah of who's the our fan winner club. today.
1: Ross Rawlings.
2: From Ross Rollins, congratulations. Golf clap for you, sir. He's got
1: a CA, a.ca email address. You know what that wow. means.
2: Wow, we're going to ship that stuff to Canada. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We go all over the world. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the.NET Rocks fan club. If you go to to.NETROCKS.com, click on the big get free stuff picture, which is up in the right hand corner, and just sign up for the fan club. It's free, it's easy. And, you know, you might win a something like a 64 core machine. Mm. Come December,
2: yeah, at the end of the year, we're going to give away a five thousand dollar package to some lucky winner, and we don't know exactly what it's going to be. But I could see that Carl's been looking at hardware.
1: Well, you know that <laughs> that would just, you know, it would be a shame for me to have to build and test that.
2: Yeah, you'd be. I could see you'd be really unhappy. I'd be about
1: really that. broken down about it. <laughs> and then I'd have to have I'd have to have Stephen to come over and give me some sort of massively parallel task that we could put this thing through. So. Well anyway, there you go. Enjoy. Congratulations, Ross. So, we finally get async await in the box in Visual Studio 11 and in uh, .net 4.5. Also in uh, uh, you know on Windows 8. Big part of Windows 8, big part of WinRT. What uh, there's no special Visual Studio hooks required to do to help with parallelism, is there? I mean, this is essentially an algorithmic issue, is not? Is it not?
0: Uh, well, I can answer that in a few different ways. Um, you know, as we were previously talking about, async and await themselves uh, don't introduce any any asynchrony. So yeah. you need APIs capable of running something asynchronously. So from that perspective, the .NET Framework four point five um, introduces a huge number of asynchronous APIs, um, a- as does Windows 8 with WinRT, as you mentioned, um, which you can then use with async await. So from that perspective, it's, it's introducing a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the compilers that ship as part of uh, .NET 4.5 for c and Visual Basic also are obviously able to understand uh, and work with these c uh, or work with these async and await keywords. Um, and from that, from that perspective, uh, you sort of talk about sort of an algorithmic work being done. The compilers, in order to implement these features, do this sort of rote uh, rewrite um, or sort of, you know, mechanical rewrite, which compilers are very good at doing, that's why we have them, um, into this state machine formation that allows you to basically say, when I hit an await on something that's not yet done, I'm going to suspend the method. And it does that by sort of marking into the state machine where it was in the method, and that way, when the awaited operation completes and the method resumes, it can basically jump back to that place in the method, that location in the state machine, or that state in the state machine, and keep mm-hmm. running. Um, and then, of course, there there are a whole bunch of tools that are in Visual Studio that make uh, working with parallelism and in asynchrony easier. Um, so there's there is a lot of support that comes in Visual Studio and in the .NET framework for building. Uh, asynchronous applications, whether you're talking about the tools that ship in Visual Studio, whether you're talking about the libraries that come in .NET, whether you're talking about performance improvements all the way up and down the stack from the CLR uh, through, you know, ASP.NET or WCF, uh, or whether you're talking about um, sort of hosts for your code, like uh, ASP.NET's ability to, uh, or or frameworks for your code, like ASP.NET's ability to allow you to write asynchronous pages or WCF's ability to allow you to write uh, asynchronous service endpoints. Mm. Um, so there's, there's all the support, but there's nothing fundamental to asynchrony that's limited to Visual Studio, uh, Visual Studio 11 or uh, .NET 4.5. Um, and, and you could do asynchrony with .NET 1.0, right? Um, right. But we, these additional features make it significantly easier.
1: Significantly easier. So... So tell me about, because you always have these great case studies of, of parallelism. And I remember, uh, it wasn't the last time you were on the show, but it was a time before you were talking about um, a box that you guys had internally that was just insane in terms of its hardware capacity and the problems that you were solving. Give me a, give me a great example.
0: Uh, so there are definitely a lot. I mean, as you saw, you can pay under $5,000 now for a 64-core machine.
2: Yeah,
1: uh,
0: and you can spend uh, you know a lot of money on boxes significantly bigger than that. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the um, one of the features that was added to the CLR uh, in this release is actually the ability to target more than sixty four cores with the thread pool. Um, uh, because it is becoming much more commonplace, you can actually now tell the CLR that. You're running on a 256 core box. You can have the thread pool automatically use all of those, whereas previously it was limited to basically one processor group of oh. 64 cores. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of power to go around. One of the interesting things we've only really been talking so far about .NET, but I should mention that um, you know there's the, beyond CPUs. There's this whole other class of hardware that is custom built for compute. Uh, and that is the GPU, right? yes. the GPU is all about massive, massive parallelism uh, to do lots of number crunching and whatnot. And, uh, and in Visual Studio 11 in C++, we have C++ AMP, uh, which is a combination of language and library support that you just you write uh, C++ code, and with a few things, you know, with a few special constructs that you use in your code, it'll automatically run on your DirectX-capable uh, GPUs. Uh, in you know, in addition to having the rest of your application running on the CPU, you don't have to do anything special to separate out the code into a, a separate application or a separate you know language. You just write your C plus code, and uh, you get to target the CPU. You get to target the GPU, and uh, life is magical. So there's some really cool stuff there as well.
1: We've come a long way from the days when we had to get a separate math co processor.
0: <laughs> uh, absolutely, you remember those days. You look at these GPUs, and it, we're not talking about 64 cores. People typically talk about thousands of things happening simultaneously. Yeah. So.
2: But what are the kinds of problems that they're tackling that they can actually, you know, distribute it that well? Right.
0: A lot of these are very um, anything that you might typically use floating point math for. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you typically think of these, you know, big scientific problems. I'm uh, processing sound. I'm processing images. I'm processing. Um, you know, video. Uh, video, whatever it may be. I'm, I'm doing analysis on radio waves coming in through SETI. And, you know, I'm uh, any of these sort of uh, I'm processing sonar un, you know, under the oceans or um, anything that does any kind of manipulation that just requires a lot of compute that you would see uh, your CPU peg out at 100% for a long time and where it's sort of a massively parallel problem. Ah, uh, those are often ripe to be handled by a GPU.
1: I'm thinking about the Kinect and what it takes processor-wise to, to sort of do that real-time tracking without any significant delay. Does does that is that um processing done on the on the PC or is it done in the sensor?
2: I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's all in the PC. Yeah, the sensor I'm... is not that smart, and that's one of the brilliance of Microsoft's implementation. Is as you're finding out in the new SDKs, Yeah. It's just new software that can do so much more. Right. Yeah, it's all about the software with the connect. That's, that's really kind of exciting. I have done some projects where we've utilized AMP. The, one of the first things I found out is your GPU cooling isn't sufficient.
1: All right, Stephen, uh, tell us what AMP is.
2: Uh, sure. So, uh,
0: AMP. Uh, apologies to all those uh, .NET listeners on the line right now. AMP is a, a C only thing in Visual Studio, um, but you can absolutely use. Uh, you write a C component that uses AMP, and then use that component from your .NET application. In fact, we have a sample on our team blog, which I can provide a link to. But what uh, is doing, it uh, for? Uh, for doing exactly that. So C AMP for accelerated massive parallelism uh, is basically a technology uh, that allows you to write C++ code as part of your Visual C++ project, um, but have that code run on the GPU massively parallelized rather than running on the CPU. Okay. So instead of writing a for loop uh, that looped over you know, two arrays and added the values in the two arrays and sorted into a third array, you could write this as a parallel for each loop using AMP. Um, and the compiler will, will automatically... Uh, generate the code necessary to run this on the on the GPU of whatever system you're running on, given the constraints, it has to have the right DirectX, you know, compatibility and so on. Uh,
2: and the project that I was involved in with AMP, we were actually doing an analysis of uh, some astrophysical stuff. So we we're studying stars and they decomposed the data brilliantly. But when we test ran it on our own machines, uh, the video card's overheated in no time. Like, the, what was fascinating is here's this computer I've got. and I'm big on quiet computers, uh, and I switched it back to air cooling, and it never made a noise or anything I did. But I ran Andrew's app for five minutes. Whoa! And the machine went insane. Huh. They it, it because they amp really puts the GPU to work in a way that Half Life Two just can't do. Huh? It's stunning. Uh, and it just shows you how underutilized the horsepower in our machines are and so since then, with that project, we've gone on to even more dedicated style hardware GPUs specifically made for this kind of work rather than being video cards. Uh, it's astonishing the compute rates you get
1: and if you live in a cold climate, you
2: get the bonus of the added heat so yeah, well my 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 tea's always warm. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and, and to Richard's point, you know, I mentioned some tools in Visual Studio earlier. Um, the, the concurrency visualizer that ships in Visual Studio 11, um, has the ability to, has some profiling ability for the GPU, so you can get a sense of what's going on in the GPU. Um, and then there are also just other GPU tools in Visual Studio. I mentioned we'd expanded out, uh, what's available in Visual Studio 11 from a tooling perspective around parallelism. Um, not only have we added new parallel windows, but All of the windows that were already there also work with your GPU code. You know, you're just writing C++, uh, and uh, you get to continue using all of your debugger windows the way you used to work, except you're looking at state on the GPU rather than on the CPU. Mm -hmm. Um, One of those new windows that I mentioned, uh, previously with Visual Studio 2010, we had the Parallel Stacks window and the Parallel Tasks window. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a new window in Visual Studio 11 called the Parallel Watch window, uh, which I, I think is pretty cool. This works not only for GPU but for CPU. So you can kind of bring ourselves back to the .NET discussion a little bit. Uh, this absolutely works for your .NET code. Um, excuse me. The neat thing about it is, you know, the, the regular watch window in Visual Studio, which is very powerful, allows you to basically enter a variable or an expression, and it gets evaluated on the current thread, uh, which is great. Uh, but when you're writing parallel code, you often want to know the value of that variable or that expression on all of your threads that are involved in that computation. Um, And so what the Parallel Watch window allows you to do is enter one or more variables or expressions, and then for all of the threads in your application, it will evaluate that variable and expression on all of those threads. And so you can kind of see the value of, uh, of that variable expression, what it is on each of those threads, wherever they currently may be. Uh, and this works whether you're in a C-Sharp app and you have a few threads or you're in a, you know, a c, an app using C++ AMP that has thousands of threads.
2: Uh,
1: I noticed that in Visual Studio 11, Silverlight 5 gets some async await love. Tell us about that.
0: Sure. So the compilers that ship in Visual Studio 11, the c and VB compilers, um, support the async and await keywords. Um, and so whatever kind of project you're building, whether you're building a WPF project or you're building a, a, Metro style app, uh, or you're building a .NET 4 app, or you're building a Silverlight 5 app. The compiler recognizes these keywords and, and will try to, uh, you know, do according to your wishes and compile to use them. However, the compiling one of these methods doesn't just result in, in the C sharp compiler or the VB compiler generating everything that it needs into your binary. They're supporting functionality in, in the .NET framework that the compiler relies on. So if you were to use ILDASM or .NET Reflector or ILSpy or some other tool to look at what the compiler generated, uh, you would find that there are these function calls uh, into methods like Uh, system.runtime.compilerservices.asyncTaskMethodBuilder.start, right? Mm -hmm. This thing buried deep in the uh, compiler services namespace. Um, So in order for these async and await keywords to actually work, uh, you need that underlying framework, that underlying framework method. Now, the compilers don't actually care where those methods live. It just needs to be able to find them. Yeah. Um, so if you're building an app that's using .NET 4.5 or .NET for Metro style apps or basically anything that ships sort of new in Visual Studio 11, all of that support is built into the framework such that the async and await keywords will work. But if you're targeting .NET 4 or if you're targeting Silverlight 5, neither .NET 4 nor Silverlight 5 have those methods. So if you try and uh, use async or await out of the box in one of those projects, you'll get an error message from the compiler saying, I can't find async task method builder.start or whatever it is that it was, that it was looking for. Um, but, of course, we want to enable folks to do that in particular because uh, we shipped this async CTP for Visual Studio 2010 uh, that works with .NET 4 and Silverlight 5. Uh, and so if someone has a project in Visual Studio 2010 that used the async CTP, and they just upgrade that project to Visual Studio 11, um, out of the box, it won't compile because the compiler is looking for things that aren't there. So what we've done is through NuGet, we've released something we call the async targeting pack which as of today is a DLL for .NET 4 and a DLL for Silverlight 5, such that you can take your .NET 4 project or your Silverlight 5 project in Visual Studio 11, uh, bring in that new get package, which will just add a reference to this DLL to your project, and that will allow the compiler to find everything that it needs so that you can use async and await uh, successfully in your .NET 4 and Silverlight 5 projects.
2: Nice. Awesome. Now, this is only for Studio 11, not for 2010?
0: That's correct. And in part, part of the problem was um, we actually changed uh, the APIs that the compiler was expecting between the CTP and what we're actually shipping in Visual Studio 11. Yeah, part of the CTP is to get feedback from folks, things that worked well, things that didn't work well. Mm. Uh, and we found that we really needed to change what APIs were exposed for the compiler to depend on. Um, right. But in doing so, the compiler that we shipped as part of the Uh, as part of Visual Studio 11, no longer works with the DLL that's part of the async CTP, which works in VS 2010. So, if you're using VS 2010, you can still use the, uh, the async CTP. Um, but if you're using VS 11, you'll, uh, you'll need to use this targeting pack. Now, I should say the, the solution that's in uh, Visual Visual Studio uh, 11, uh, is much, much, much more robust than the one that's in 2010. So, you know, again, Mm -hmm. The one in 2010 was a CTP. It was very early. There were bugs and so on. Uh, We've done a lot of work on performance. We've done a lot of work on uh, robustness and reliability. So Visual Studio 11, we we absolutely encourage you to use that for your asynchronous needs. Um, But if you are using 2010, you can continue to use the async CTP.
1: And I've also shrunk that URL at tinyurl.com slash async TP.
2: Or you could just use NuGet. Nice. And also, you don't need this if you're working in 4.5. This is specifically, you're working in 4.0, you're working on Silverlight 5, you're willing to move to Studio 11, but you're not going to upgrade the framework just yet. Right. Exactly. That's correct. Okay. I mean, it, so suddenly the targeting name makes a lot of sense. This is a very specific target. Exactly. It's, you're using Visual Studio 11, but you need to basically
0: multi target down to.NET 4 or Silverlight 5. Right. Uh, you can use this targeting pack and be off and running.
1: Great. Steven, is there any other nuggets that you want to drop on us before we call it a show?
0: Uh, not, nothing in particular. I, I'd recommend folks check out our, um, our team blog. We've had a couple blogs about what's new in the Visual Studio 11 uh, developer preview and then a subsequent one about beta uh, and a subsequent one about the release candidate. Uh, so uh, there's a, a lot of interesting uh, nuggets, as you call them there, about a lot of the performance work we did in this release, about some of the new tools, some of the new libraries, a lot of the new asynchronous methods, there's quite a significant amount of value uh, to all those naysayers out there. Um, and so I'd absolutely encourage folks to go uh, check it out.
1: Definitely go check it out. It's good stuff. Thanks, Steven.
0: Thank you, guys. It's great to be here.
1: Great to talk to you. And we'll see you next time on Don Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, PluralSight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online pluralsight.com rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop productions providing professional audio audio mastering video post production and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com Got transmit a transmitter band by the FCC. and yes, i